This is the Customer Equity Accelerator. If you are a marketing executive who wants to deliver bottom line impact by identifying and connecting with your revenue generating customers, then this is the show for you. I'm your host, Allison Hartso, CEO of Ambition Data. Every other week, I bring you the leaders behind the customer-centric revolution who share their expert advice. If you are ready to accelerate, then let's go. Welcome, everyone. Today's show is a series of stories about customer-driven data science. And to help me discuss this topic is Colleen Chu. Colleen is currently the head of data science at Albertsons, which is the second largest grocery store chain in North America. But if you look at her resume, it reads like literally like a who's who of Silicon Valley. Colleen has held data science positions at Providian Financial, eBay, PayPal, Chegg, of course, Poshmark, and Tesla on the list as well. Colleen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alison. Hi, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. So normally we start out with your background and talking through that, but we're going to cover so much of that in detail today. Could you instead start with what your team at Albertsons does and what you specifically do today? Yeah, certainly. Happy to share that. So I joined Albertsons in late October last year, and my role is to help stand up an internal core data science team. So what we focus on is to really apply modeling techniques and algorithms to help really solve different type of problems that the company have. And that include, for example, from a customer perspective, we are working customer lifetime value modeling. We are also working on customer term modeling, as well as other type of analysis, looking at the engagement and digital marketing. How do we build recommendation engine personalization? for our shoppers in-store experiences, as well as their online digital experiences. You know, I think it's interesting that you mentioned churn modeling, because I sometimes think of that as something that's really related to a subscription service. Either you're on or you're off. You know, I have a healthcare subscription, or I'm a member of a gym, or I'm not a member of a gym, or I'm getting the magazine, or I'm not getting the magazine. Could you talk a little bit about how you think about when somebody is churned, just briefly? Yeah. So to simply put, right now, we define churn as in the next month or next three months, the customers are not making purchases with us. So that is how we label churn today. Definitely, we don't have subscriptions. We do have a loyalty program where customers can play with the coupons and apply their personalized deals. But as far as the churn is defined, it's really simple here. We look at the customers who typically would make some purchases in a three-month duration. But when we notice that they stop making that purchases, then we consider that as a churn. That makes sense. I think a lot of people do that is they have to put a stake in the ground somewhere. And three months seems like a good logical place. And there's probably a lot of modeling that goes in behind that. Let's first clarify the difference between when we talk about product-driven versus customer-driven data science. I always think customer lifetime value is the heart of customer-driven data science. And you might agree or you might have another take on that, but it seems like it's been lately growing in popularity. Do you think that's true or has it always been there? 
I feel it has always been there, mostly from my personal career. Because when I first started working for Providing Financial around 2000 in San Francisco, my first job is actually to look at the customer churn lifetime value. And we have a program where we call it retention program. Basically, we look at our cardholders to predict who are about to kind of maybe get another card. And we use that model along with their lifetime value to make a decision on, okay, what other offers can we provide to the customer trying to keep the customer with us and keep them engaged? So from my perspective, I think my very first job is already applying modeling and doing predictive type of work there and really focused on making sure the customers are staying with us. Was that using more recency frequency analysis or was it true projecting forward CLV? CLV-wise, is a different, more like a model, but the attrition was a logistic regression, which today you actually would consider is part of a machine learning algorithm. Mm-hmm. Early on, no doubt. But I think a lot of the old science is new in that, you know, customer lifetime value and the early database systems, even though they were just using zip code data and demographic data, were using more advanced modeling programs. Is that what you had here to work with at Providian? Yeah, at that time, we are already looking at the customer level data. We're calculating lifetime value of the customers based on their transactions, their usages with the credit card that Providian offered back then. Mm-hmm. And did you have external data that you were able to pull in to try to understand whether they were ripe for retention modeling or whether they were going to get another card? Not at that time. I believe there are like research teams inside the company who are looking at that. But from our internal use cases, we're actually 100% relied on internal data, mostly kind of how customers engage, transact using their cards and some of the demographic attributes around the household as well. Mm, That makes perfect sense. Thank you. Yeah. So obviously, Colleen, you've worked for these amazing brands. Can you share some examples from your experience about how customer-driven data science was conducted and maybe a little bit about how it evolved? Yeah, certainly. I think my second job is with PayPal and eBay. And when I was at eBay, the company at that time, we had a strategy where we call it AAA. So it really turns into customer-focused acquisition, activation, and attrition. So at that time, we believe we can solve the AAA, then we actually can really grow the community and grow the business. And then from then, I worked at a startup company called Chad, which is really focused on college-aid students. And there, I was kind of supporting the so-called student advocacy team. And that team, their primary job is kind of like customer support function. But the team was put in a core position for company's future. And the reason for that is that as a student advocate, you want to really speak on behalf of students. You want to see what students are going through when they are using our platforms to order their textbooks or to solve their homework help needs. So from there, kind of you started bring the insights and the feedback that you gather from the students and you take it to the different department of the business. So where we work with product team, operational teams, et cetera, et cetera, the goal is to really help drive the business to more effectively serving our students' community. So that was at Chag, And then later on, at the Postmark, 
it's a social media sales platform. I mean, it's really fun to be there. And their job is really kind of trying to sell fashion through the community, right? And I was there briefly, but definitely the company has a huge focus. And I think they kind of say, you know, they need to love their community and really make their community love their services. So there's a lot of like different focus on community and at both eBay and Poshmark, they used to order, organize these large events, which is really bring all the online user groups together physically. So kind of become like you get really to see each other and interact and the face to face. In eBay, it's called eBay Live. Mm-hmm. And uh, Poshmark, I forgot the name, but definitely they organize it once a year. It's a major event. The whole community customer get together. Everybody enjoy each other's company and also give the company more feedback on how the product they are building can serve the community better. I have to laugh because I remember I've been to several eBay lives. Yeah. I used to have a company that focused on eBay and these events, I mean, it's not just any old event. eBay Live is like Disney World for a week in a convention center. It is crazy. And all of these people have all of these different types of badges and banners that they put on their name tag. And it is really special. And you can see the heart of the company coming through that. What I didn't know until you just said it was how much the company was listening to the community at that point, instead of just gathering people together, really using it as a bi-directional event. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And most recently, so before Arbison, I was heading up the global service data science analytics team at Tesla. So at Tesla, as everyone knows that we have almost zero marketing budget. <laughs> So the philosophy there is if we make the product and we serve our customers well, then we really don't need to spend the money on marketing. And I think the company is hugely successful in achieving that goal as well. So if we take those, what was that, four experiences we talked about, and I know that's just kind of skimming the surface of your resume, but if we take eBay and Chegg and Providian, Poshmark and Tesla, that group of five, do you think that all those companies had in common the ability to combine the quantitative and qualitative side to get an intuitive sense of the customer? Yes, definitely. I definitely feel that. I think there's always huge focus on quantitative side because these companies are mostly at massive scale. So it is dangerous, you know, if you just talk to a subset, a small sample of customers and you think you're getting the clear read on the sentiment from your community. So definitely we are looking besides the qualitative surveys support phone calls or other type of gathering the feedback from the community, like research studies, etc. There's a huge focus on leveraging data and data science to trying to get effective read with no bias across the board using all the data the company has. But that can be difficult. So for example, I've seen in other companies where they gather feedback from the community, but it is anonymous feedback or it's not connected to the data set or it's siloed in one place part of the company and the other parts of the company can't access it. So was there something about these companies that said, we really must have the quantitative matched and aligned to the qualitative? 
Yeah, I think sometimes it's just to be very much aware that what we're trying to make or business trying to do is make the best decision given all the information they can gather at the time. So the best to do is try to imagine like the different type of information that can help you make that decision. So definitely, I would say you do not want to make a biased decision. And the best way to do that is trying to gather as much information as possible before you make that final call. And you don't want to say, hey, you know, I read 10 different feedbacks and therefore this product sucks or this customer experience is not the optimal. You actually also want to look at the transactions and the conversions all these activities that the community is doing so that you get a clear read. Because in the end, I don't think there is such a thing as a perfect customer experiences or a perfect product, right? Today, we focus a lot more on personalization because we realize different people have different preferences. They behave differently. They expect different things differently. So how do you give end users the best optimal experience that they prefer? I think the best thing to do is trying to connect all the dots and to make that final decision after you review all the information that you have. So I think that sounds logical on the surface, but I've also seen a school of thought that says, and it's particularly from a Nielsen training seminar that, that trains people on user experience. And they made the argument that you don't have to hit the pothole a hundred times to know that there's a pothole there. And essentially that small data can be very valuable for making quick decisions, especially when it comes to UX and design. But I think there's a similar argument for big data in that you don't want to throw so much information in there that you're correlating with the number of sheep herders in Afghanistan. So how do you decide or how do you shape the data to be meaningful enough but not end up with spurious correlations? Yeah, that's a very great question. I think uh, from my perspective, what I observe, the best is actually start from the objective. What kind of problem are we trying to solve for and what type of solutions are we trying to build? I think that there are times that, for example, Tesla, before we make the car, no one knows how popular the car would be. And would it be crazy that we say, hey, we can't make any car unless we gather a lot of data about this car? So you do have to rely on experiences there. Maybe you also rely on user studies, et cetera, trying to get a read on what is the product that you want to build. But I think, though, in today's environment, there are so much data out there. I think even sometimes the company itself do not have data because you have not launched the product. But there are actually data out there that you can borrow to formulating a study before you kind of march forward based on just the user experience study. So I think it goes back to the objective, uh, what kind of problem you're trying to solve. And then from there, you kind of figure out, okay, what kind of data is useful in the circumstances. I think what was interesting, too, that you said in the very beginning was not just the objective, but you also mentioned what kind of solutions. And in a way... That's a really interesting angle that I don't think everybody thinks about. A lot of times a data scientist will approach the problem and say, okay, what kind of data can I get together and what kind of output can I figure out that's interesting in this data? But the ability for the company or whoever is the stakeholder, whoever receives the data, the ability for them to take action on that solution is what I heard when you said what kind of solutions could you have. Is that something that you actively take into account when you 
or forming your objective? Yeah, definitely. I think when we take on any conceptual project, we tend to try to figure out several aspects of the project. It starts from what problem are we solving, what's the objective, but it also kind of go down the path of what is our vision on the solution? What type of data and what type of, in the data science space, what type of modeling or algorithm do we want to try? And how do we envision in the end this whole experience, whether it's a customer experience or it's a business decision holder, a decision maker's experience would change using whatever we are building based on data. It sounds like you're really thinking through the problem. And I want to go back to what you said at Chegg, where you were part of the student advocacy team, because I think that's a really interesting place to pick up your customer feedback, in this case, student feedback. Did you have any interesting challenges there where you might have had feedback in one direction and maybe you didn't have data on the other side and you're trying to rectify the two? Let me think. That's a great question. I think there are a few projects I remember to date very clearly. One project is related to how we changed the whole checkout flow on the site. Mm-hmm. So it was initially just primarily hearing from the community that from the students that the checkout process is takes a lot of time and it's not the most easy, exciting experiences for them, you know. So what we did is we went to the product team and we looked at, okay, how many pitches does the student have to go through to do the checkout? And also, how are we differentiating existing customers versus brand new customers' checkout experiences? So just by doing some of the most basic checks there, we actually identified the opportunity for existing customers where we basically can prefill a lot of the information, just ask for their double check and the confirmation before we place the orders. So really reduce the number of pages they have to go through to finish the checkout. And similarly, we did the improvements for new customers, trying to make their checkout experiences less steps with fewer steps and easier for them to finish. So that itself, we were able to improve the checkout conversion rate by double digits. It helps the business, but also we get great feedback from the community. And I can just say, like most of us who have been online and have had to exhaustively fill out a form where someone should have pre-filled it for us, that is so wonderful when that happens. Yeah. And the company can actually think through the customer perspective. Essentially, you're putting yourself in your customer's shoes, not just picking up the qualitative data, but really thinking through the process to say, how can we both win? How you want more conversions. The customer doesn't want to fill in the hassle with all the different forums, what a great place to unite both of the needs. Yeah. And then the other example there is really not too much of data driven, but start from data. So based on the data we see on complaints about books arriving late, which is generally happening at the beginning of the school because a lot of colleges don't finalize their schedule until tomorrow the school is starting. And students are rushing to order their books. And however, it takes several days minimum for the book to arrive on the campus. So a lot of students have this challenge where they rush to get the books and they're frustrated that on their first day of school, they don't have books, which actually my kids are going through this right now for the virtual learning program. But what happened is based on this complaint from the community, it was one of the top complaints. And what happened is that the company introduced the Read While You Wait program, which is really to offer ebook 
to the students after they place the order before their books arrive. So really solve the pain and create a lot of value for our customers. Nice. So once they place the order, they didn't have to wait. They could just start reading and catch up immediately. That's nice instant gratification. I bet they loved it. Yeah. Mm. I want to also go back to eBay. And one of the things that was so interesting at eBay is forget exactly how many categories there were, but let's say that there's a dozen top level categories. And then within those, there are are branches upon branches upon branches so that maybe there are several thousand categories at eBay for different products. Would that be about right? Yeah, I think so. It's an ever-changing product catalog. Yes. (laughs) Yes, yes. But very complex. And so if you were to take a product-focused approach, and maybe eBay did at one point, was it just simply an easier path to take a customer focus because there was so much product and the product was always shifting? Or was there a balance between product-focused analysis and customer-focused analysis? eBay actually is an ecosystem, is a platform to get the buyers and the sellers together. So different from Amazon's model today, where Amazon actually runs its own operation, has their warehouses, eBay is actually solely serving as a platform when I was there. So eBay's focus actually have always been its customers, but between the customers, we have the buyers and the sellers. So the company usually for a period of time will focus on growing the buyers and put all the focus on buyers trying to improve their experiences. Mm -hmm. And then later on in the business, I know during some transition, they actually moved towards to be more seller focused to help the sellers to be able to do better businesses on the site. In the end, I think eBay actually always focus on their customers. Actually, their focus on product is mostly just trying to see how can we build a better product to serve our customers better, whether it's sellers or buyers. Now, that's really interesting because I think a lot of companies struggle with the definition of who is the customer. And here you're defining the customer in two ways, buyer and seller, which must be difficult. And I can see why. And I, I remember being on the inside of this and feeling the shift between between the buyer's windorphins campaign, it's fun to buy, and seller-focused, look at all these tools and look at all these new features we're rolling out. You could definitely see that if you were close to the eBay ecosystem. Without the company putting the focus and saying, you have to focus on buyers or you have to focus on sellers, could it have been a challenge to rectify both of those audiences at the same time? Definitely, I think so, because there are different priorities. Depends on whether you are coming from a buyer's focus or versus from a seller's focus. So definitely, I think by shifting the strategy to focus on buyers, that's during a specific time frame of eBay. And then later on, they actually do try to focus on sellers, trying to enrich their selection and grow their supplies, diversify their kind of offering to the buyers. So I think definitely when you make these strategic decisions, it definitely shapes the community one way or the other. And also sometimes the product are tuned differently to serve the different priorities as well. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting philosophy that they took in that lever pulling between the two. I wonder if you had a technology company and you had, and maybe this is apt for Tesla, I'm not sure, but if you had to focus on value-added resellers and you had to focus on direct-to-consumer and you had to focus on B2B and dealers or multiple audiences, I wonder if you could still do that kind of shifting or if you would really have to 
almost take a certain layer of them all at once and then maybe focus a little harder in one area or another. How do you think a company should balance all of those different potential customers? I think yeah, eBay is a is kind of unique because then at Tesla, it's less a platform. It's really trying to make a most energy efficient car. So at Tesla, I think when we think about customers, mostly we're trying to treat all the customers the same and also understand who has been through a little bit of rough ownership experiences and how can we help them. But on the other side, it's really also about revolutionize the relationship with the customers because in the traditional vehicle manufacturing industry, there's the manufacturer, then there are the dealers, etc. But Tesla is really the first company on the end-to-end relationship. So Tesla not only manufacturer, but Tesla is its own dealer. Tesla runs its own service centers and trying to control the best customer experiences to the buyers, to the owners. So from that perspective, I think even though you do segment the customers differently, we know some customers had more issues with their cars than others. We typically try to think about how to do it better. We also try to take a totally different angle at customer relationships and say, okay, traditionally, when you buy a car, you spend several months, you have to talk to the different dealers negotiate the price. What kind of experience do we want to offer to a Tesla owner is that we don't really want you to have to negotiate. We want to offer you the best price the company can afford to give you. And in terms of services, we don't need to make any money. We don't want to make money from servicing your car. We just want you to be so delighted with your vehicle. But in the traditional manufacturing uh, vehicle selling industry, the dealers actually make a significant chunk of revenue from services. So I think from Tesla's perspective, because it owns the end-to-end experiences, the company also tried to envision, okay, how do we want to see customers' service needs being met? Okay, we want to drive to their offices or their homes to service their car when they don't need to come to a service center So there's a lot of kind of innovation happening in a company who can control that end-to-end journey with their customers. And I think the Tesla is definitely way ahead of others' industry. I could see that, and I could see the data advantage there, too. Does the information that Tesla sees in the car, I imagine it it also flows through to the second and third owners. So even if I don't connect with Tesla, if I change and sell the car to someone else, will Tesla know that as it pulls through? Not necessarily. Some of the you you are selling your car secondhand to another owner. We do not necessarily know. Not I'm aware of, but I'm not uh, there to handle that part of the data. There's also definitely privacy concerns. We as employee there, we're not going to see every single transaction or whatever you're doing in your car. So there's a certainly control there as well. But I think the centralized process that you're talking about, owning the process end to end, must give the company a lot of rich data to work with, even if it's anonymized. And if you're trying to understand, is this vehicle delighting the customer or not? Yes, definitely. We can see at the body collision center what parts are being used to repair what kind of a collision. We can also see in our repair service center when the car comes in for annual services, what type of issues are the top challenges for the owners and et cetera, et cetera. So we get almost end to end and we sometimes we can also track 
this particular issue probably originated during the delivery process or it maybe originated from the manufacturing process, then we would actually go talk to the stakeholder to say, okay, here's the size of the problem. How can we work on a plan to improve the situation? So it's interesting, but I know that uh, Pete Fader over at Wharton and other people who love customer lifetime value have suggested, and I, I've never heard of a company that's quite done this yet, although they may be out there, but they have suggested that when you use customer lifetime value deeply within a company, you can decide what problems to fix or how to run your supply chain or different things based on the value of the customer to the business. Was that something that Tesla entertained in that maybe if there's an issue with different types of parts performing, and I don't mean catastrophic issues by any means, but maybe if it's a higher value product or a higher value customer that is attached to that issue, did it get any priority? Was there any usage of CLV that way? Not really at Tesla, because when we look at the size of the problem, every problem that's happening to a vehicle is a serious problem. So we can look at how long does it take to take care of this type of problem and the costs related to take care of it and the, the negative impact on the ownership. So generally there, we actually treat the customers the same. I think because it, it is, we are trying to sell our product. And the mandate is to build the best product that we can at that moment. So therefore, we treat all problems equally, mostly. And I'm trying to think if I have a use case where we would prioritize the problem differently. I think actually in my current role where we are retail, so we do have customers who spend a lot, who are the most loyal and elite customer groups with us. And that's where if we notice, hey, this type of experience has negative impact on long-term engagement from customers, that's where we actually prioritize accordingly. Because in that case, it's not a one-time purchase, and then I might purchase again in a couple years. It's a recurring series of purchases, and then the items within the purchase, I imagine, are also giving you a sense of the engagement and the value that someone is finding every time they walk inside the store. Yes, yes. Because in grocery retail, we all consume grocery every week uh, mm-hmm. through our life. So the lifetime value can be really huge if you look at the whole lifespan of the customer or their household. So it's a different type of environment that grocery retail is in. I imagine the answer to this is going to be yes, but have you seen demand in your stores that's more than just people buying more? Have you seen interesting inflections in demand at Albertsons? Yeah, people buy more and definitely the customers are also very different. There are more kind of deal seeker type of customers than there are customers who enjoy certain type of food, like there are the baking holics, <laughs> right? They come to the store, they buy a lot of flour, and especially during this time of the year. So there's like a very different type of consumer behavior that we are observing, which is very fun, and they are all very different. Oh, that's nice. I oftentimes use grocery stores as an analogy when we talk about data science because it's an easy way for people to understand the different complexities in data, just like the ingredients in a recipe. So I'll be sure to mention interesting Albertsons uses of data science when I make those analogies along the way. (laughs) 
Thank you. So when we think about what affects a company's ability to have good customer relationships, is it the strategy that comes down from the top that you think makes the most difference? Is it the ability to collect that customer feedback? Is it the feeling of people inside the company that they're all operating as a team? Is it the data that's present? In your experience, as you've gone across these different companies and you've had these different stories, what really stands out and helps them connect to the customer? Definitely multiple fold to the answer, but definitely the top one would come from the top. I think companies like Amazon, Tesla, Albertsons now very heavily focused on customers. Um, that's part of the core strategy from the leadership team. So definitely, I think you do need that voice to prioritize because otherwise you can prioritize something else rather than customer focus. So it is also proven success secret on how you can grow your business and run your business as it's going to be a forever business. So definitely, I think it's a key to the success of the company. And then besides that, I think it definitely comes from the bottom, right? Like from my team's perspective, we don't get to serve our customers day to day, but we get to see customers' data. So what we try to do is to figure out, okay, my connection to our customers is through data. How do I leverage data to give them better shopping experiences online and offline? How do we use data to drive a lower cost for the groceries they're trying to buy at a higher quality? So that's what we're trying to do. But I would definitely say that it has to come from the top and really make the whole journey a lot easier. So when it comes from the top, it enables the tactical element. Do you also see that if you are representing any given company in the past, did it really help you to be the customer for a day, you know, to drive around in the Tesla, to buy and sell on Poshmark and eBay, to shop at Albertsons in a collection of different stores? Yes, definitely. (laughs) Yes. And is that something you encourage your team to experience? Yes, for sure. Before the COVID-19, actually, I toured several of our stores. So before I would just go buy groceries as an individual, but after joining the company, I really want to also see that from a store manager perspective, how they run the store, how they greet the customer, what are their most challenging days. And at Tesla, my team, we used to visit the service center once three times a quarter. Every team member, we will do that. Or we can volunteering for the delivery team. So we do all sort of engagement where we really try to talk to our own customers and touch our own products. That makes perfect sense. And I think that's one of the most undervalued pieces that I find some data science teams struggle with. They're kind of left in a box and they don't get that customer interaction. Yes. Okay. So if I'm going to start my own smart customer-centric data science team, obviously I need support from the top. Are there any other elements I really need to have to make sure that I'm staying focused on proper customer-centric data science approaches? Yeah, I think I would start by kind of sharing or create a vision on how do you want to become a customer-centric data science team? And then shortly after that, I would imagine that you would kind of map out your customer's journey. You figure out, you know, where do you interact with the customers? How are you collecting data? 
And then based on that, I think you can start applying different type of modeling. The algorithm trying to help optimize and automate some of these experiences for customers. That's an excellent summary. Do you find that there are specific areas once you start to apply those different algorithms and automation that usually have low-hanging fruit? Yeah, I still feel like CLV is a great low-hanging fruit, <laughs> even though all companies know that they want to have their CLV. But I think there's still a lot of opportunities for customer lifetime value to be used in a lot of decision making by different teams in a company. Mm-hmm. Oh, I certainly couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> yes. So, Colleen, thank you so much for giving us these insights about the tremendous companies that you've worked with and the fact that reinforcing that CLV is valuable. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I think I covered plenty of stories today. Well, as always, links to everything we discussed are at ambitiondata.com slash podcast. Colleen, thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to have you. Alison, thanks for inviting me to this session. It has been a wonderful experience. And remember, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity, just like Colleen did. It's not magic. It's a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. See you next time on the Customer Equity Accelerator.